0: The reading from Scripture today comes from Joshua 5.13 and two verses from Judges. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and worshiped, and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy, and Joshua did so. Judges three seven and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and twenty one twenty five. In those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the Word of the Lord.
1: We go from the uh, the power and the blood song and then to a slower how deep the Father's love and it kind of made me think about how in the world Joshua and Judges fit together. This conquering victory story into this story of despair and failure and discouragement. So, we're going to figure out how those two fit together today. Before we begin, let's ask God to soften our hearts and reveal himself to us. Father, we, we are humbled that we do not deserve such blessings. We do not deserve to know you. We have done nothing in our lives but run from you. And yet you draw us back again and again. And You give us Your Spirit to keep us faithful, to keep us steadfast, and You have poured out Your love for us in Your Son on the cross. I pray that this morning Your Word would come to life in us and we would live as people redeemed and we would live for the glory of our King, unified in exalting His name together, the name of Jesus Christ who has all authority in heaven and on earth, may we magnify the name of Jesus today. Amen. This year in school, my children have been learning a lot about the period of history of the Great Depression, World War II, and all the really difficult and sometimes gruesome things that happened in that time. Economic collapse, families losing their homes, war, internment camps, concentration camps, racial tension, bombing at Pearl Harbor. It's kind of a scary time. And our kids are learning about these things and they ask me, Dad, what's right? What's wrong? Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Where are the Who are the heroes that show up and identify the villains that they need to overcome to make things right? And so often, I have to tell my kids, it's just not so easily defined. The world cannot be categorized so simply. And it's it's a good thing in our nature to want to identify right and wrong, good and bad, heroes and villains. So when really complex circumstances, difficult situations arise, we want to force these dichotomies, a right and a wrong, on the situation in order to make it easier to know how to respond. It does make life a little simpler, but it becomes problematic when we start adding moral labels to either side. So for example, we look back at the Civil War and we say the North were the good guys because they fought against slavery and the South were bad guys because they defended slavery. It's not that simple. It was a much more complicated situation than that. And more recently, I remember after 9-11, well, more recently, 20 years ago, (laughs) 9-11 afterwards, we, we projected this image of America as the good guys, the beacon of freedom throughout the world, and all those people in the Middle East, they were evil terrorists who hate freedom. It's not so simple. The last year has exposed this tendency in us as well. Always fighting for which side is right. Social justice or supporting the police. Wearing masks or fighting tyranny. Protecting grandma, mental health. Republican, Democrat. Who's right? Each side has its heroes. Nurses are heroes. And cops are heroes. Politicians, protesters. Parents, teachers, pastors. Some pastors are heroes. Experts are heroes. And now vaccines are heroes. We, we've we drawn these battle lines and either you're on the good side or you're on the bad side. And we turn against each other and turn each other into enemies and it's becoming the downfall of our own society. Something is broken in how we try to conquer the issues of our day. in our desire to... Fix things, we only make it worse. Turning against each other, devouring one another in our self-righteous efforts to do what is good. So, how are we going to escape this mess? How do we find victory over the problems that plague us? These books of Joshua and Judges this morning are revealing to us that we will only find victory unified in King Jesus. Find victory unified in King Jesus. The book of Joshua tells us the story, continues the story from where we've been coming so far, of Israel who's been rescued dramatically from the exodus out of Egypt, from bondage in Egypt. And then they wandered and complained through the wilderness until finally they've arrived at the promised land. But God is warning them, you will not take this land unless you are unified in God's holiness. They must come together, submit to God and His plans, very defined plans for victory. If they compromise these plans, deviate from His holiness, it will only guarantee defeat which is what happens when you turn the page and start reading the book of Judges. After an initial period of obedience and victory, this rescue-then-fall pattern of the Old Testament just kicks into hyperdrive. Rescue, fall, over and over again. Where in Joshua, they were unified in God's holiness in Judges. They are defeated in Israel's idolatry. They were divided. They compromised God's commands. They drew lines of good and evil in the wrong places. And they were defeated. But through it all, God remains faithful to keep His promises, which we'll see at the end of Joshua, and see how it even leads to a greater fulfillment in Christ. So we're going to start in Joshua and fly through Joshua and fly through Judges. Two whole books in 30 minutes. Let's do it. Before beginning their conquest, Israel needs to learn something very important. They must first be unified in God's holiness. So look back at Joshua 5, starting in verse 13 again. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Well, the first few chapters that I skipped over already in the book of Joshua are kind of meant to make us feel like we've heard this before. It sounds a lot like the call of Moses and and Israel coming out of Egypt. So we're we're meant to see Joshua as a new Moses, leading a new Israel into the promised land. So Moses or Joshua stands up before the people and proclaims the law to them. Obey this. And then he sends spies into the promised land, just like Moses did in Numbers 13. And then he leads Israel through the waters of, not the Red Sea, the Jordan River. Another miraculous parting of the sea where they walk through on dry land. It's another story of death to the old people and a new birth to a new humanity that comes out of the water. They're a new nation arriving in their new land in order to live with God in His holiness. Remember holiness from the book of Leviticus a couple of weeks ago. How important holiness was for the temple. But now we get this little hint from the angel that the land is holy. This, This concept of holiness in the tabernacle is spreading to the borders of the entire nation. God is going to fill this land with His holiness. It's like a new Garden of Eden with a new humanity coming to live in it. And so if God's holiness is to dwell there, that means the people who live in the land must be holy as well, or get out like Adam and Eve had to when they sinned. And just like the tabernacle had to be cleansed, so the land needs to be cleansed. But before they go in and start this holy war, God needs them to realize it's not about them. It's about God's holiness. So on their way up, they're finally heading in. Another miracle right before their eyes and they're marching up to have their first battle at Jericho. And their path is blocked by a mighty angelic soldier. Kind of you can imagine Joshua trembling a little bit. Yikes! Uh And he asks him, are, are you on, on their team or our team? Because if he's on their team, we're in a lot of trouble. And if he's on our team, this is going to be a piece of cake. And the angel just cuts him off. No. Neither of those. I'm on God's team. God doesn't choose sides in human conflicts. This is God's battle. Every battle is God versus the world. Everyone is called to surrender to God. Israel needed to be conquered before they could come in and conquer God's land. As is true in most of these dichotomies where we're forced to choose one side or another, neither is really completely right. There might be elements of truth in every argument, but God is the one who has it all In line. God is always right and we must get ourselves on His side. During the Civil War, somebody once asked Abraham Lincoln if he thought God was on His side with the North. And Abraham Lincoln responded, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. For God is always right. This is what the angel is trying to get across to Joshua right now. They need to get this straight. The battle is God's. The land isn't for them. It's for God's holiness to be put on display through them. If these battles are going to be victorious, they need to lay down their arms against one another. They need to stop choosing sides and unify around God and let Him fight. And so the next few chapters tell us two different stories to contrast the lesson learned and the lesson not learned. First, in Jericho, God tells them what their battle plan is, and the battle is quite easy, surprisingly. All right, God, give us our instruction. What are we going to do? We're going to we're going to bomb that wall down. Are we going to dig underneath? We're going to build some siege engines to climb up over. No you're going to do something that looks utterly foolish to the world. It's going to look extremely unsafe to you. They're they're just going to be able to stand on top and throw stuff down at you and kill you all. All you're going to do is get in a big crowd, lift high my throne, that Ark of the Covenants that represents God's throne, and walk in silence around the city. What a battle plan. Don't talk. Don't let anybody have any idea that you are the ones coming up with this plan. This is God's battle. And so they do that every day for six days, one time around the city. At the end of the day, they blow the trumpets to announce, victory's coming. Seventh day, they do it seven times. They blow the trumpets to announce the victory and all in unison, they shout and the walls come tumbling down. Incredible. God lifted high before their shut mouths and He easily won the battle for them. But that victory was so easy, it kind of went to their heads. God had told them, when you go into Jericho, destroy everything. Don't keep anything for yourself. You might be tempted to be drawn away from Me. You might think that you earned it. You might try to hold something back just in case next time the battle plan doesn't work out so well. Don't marry their women, don't keep their treasures, especially don't collect and worship their idols. But they did anyway. And so in chapter eight, they head to the next city to go fight and they don't, they don't even ask God, is there a new battle strategy? They don't even try the Jericho battle plan. They weren't unified. They sent only a few of them while some remained back enjoying the spoils that they weren't supposed to keep. They had brought division by turning the battle into an opportunity for their own gain, for self-preservation. And at AI, they were routed. It was an embarrassment. Hundreds of Israelites killed. They turned from unity in God's holiness and it almost destroyed them. They should have been destroyed. Mercifully, God comes back and He tells them, I'm still going to use you, and so I'm going to give you a chance to fix it. You need to get rid of those people that refuse to listen and obey. So they, they remove the sinful people from among them. They repent and they reunify in God's holiness and they go out back to the city and they were victorious. With these two pictures in mind, now the lesson is clear. Stay unified in God's holiness. And from then on, the next few chapters just show to us one city after another falls easily by God's hand. He delivers every city right into their hands, removing all the unholy peoples from the land of Canaan. Slaughtering them. It's a little gruesome. Let me just pause for a moment and reflect on this. This is a part of the Bible that lots of people have a difficult time understanding. How in the world is God justified sending Israel to wipe these people out? Books and dissertations have been written on this. We could spend days debating this, but I'll just give you a few things to go home and think about. First, God owns... The entire world, not just the promised land. He owns everything and He is the judge of every single person. He has the right to bring punishment for people as wicked as the Canaanites. They engaged in vile sexual practices. They, they sacrificed their own children this is abhorrent to God and must be punished. But second, don't, don't think that gives you the right to go off and start holy wars wherever you see wickedness. This was a unique moment in history. Moses and Joshua had clear calls from God. An unmistakable call to lead these people. And they were backed up by multiple, mighty, miraculous Works. They were called for a specific purpose at a specific time in redemptive history in a specific land that was not supposed to go beyond the borders of what God called them. Nobody since then has any right to claim that God told them to go punish people for their sin. And finally, there there were exceptions to allow people to escape this punishment like Rahab in Jericho. She saw that God was the one true God. And if you were willing to turn against your idolatry, you could come and dwell in the land with God and worship Him alone. But if you didn't leave, this land that's filled with God's holiness would kill you. Just like Nadab and Abihu in the temple. This isn't about ethnic cleansing. This is about God's holiness. These stories are meant to make us understand God is serious about His holiness. And then the rest of the book describes this conquest. Israel stayed unified in that holiness and victory was theirs. Joshua 21, verses 43 and 45, thus Yahweh gave to Israel all the land He swore to give to their fathers. Not one word of all the good promises that Yahweh made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. God kept His promises. Even when they failed, even when they didn't deserve it, God was faithful. And then the next few chapters are kind of boring. Dividing up the land. Parts of geography we don't really understand. All of it to tell us what Moses predicted in Deuteronomy. They would move into homes they did not build and drink from cisterns they didn't dig and eat from vineyards that they didn't plant. Not because they were so much better than the Canaanites, Moses said then. No, it should be obvious to us by now that Israel deserved the same fate as the Canaanites. So do we. But in His mercy, God chose Israel to represent His holiness in the land. What mercy! But even Joshua knows this probably won't last forever. So right at the end of the book, he gives them the same call to obedience that Moses did right before Moses died. Joshua stands up before them just before he dies in Joshua 23 verse 15 says, just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring all upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you off this good land. That he has given you if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God. Serious warnings not to take this unity in God's holiness lightly. And then the book ends right, right after that, leaving us wondering, yay, Israel's in the land, but the leaders are gone. God was faithful. Will Israel be faithful to God? Let me turn the page to the book of Judges and we get our answer. Judges reveals that they divided, they separated from God's holiness and they were defeated in Israel's idolatry. This repeated refrain tells us how bad things are in Israel. Chapter 3, verse 7, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The book of Judges is not pretty. Mike Bold's not here taking care of his new baby. He thinks it's one of the greatest books in the entire Bible. It's not a pretty story. It picks up right where Joshua left off and immediately spirals into destruction and chaos. It shows this repeated pattern of Israel's sin, and then God brings punishment through a foreign oppressor. They cry out in repentance, God, help us! And then He sends a rescuer to redeem them. Someone called a judge because they bring justice back to the land. And this pattern repeats itself over and over with six primary stories of these judges. You may have heard a few of them. Deborah, Gideon, Samson... The really strong guy. Every time Israel sins, one of these judges shows up to rescue them from their peril. They rescue them, restore everything again, and then they sin again. And each time it gets worse and it gets worse and worse until the very end of the book of Judges. You read this really disturbing story of idolatry and Prostitution and disgusting, sickening murder. And you're going, what? That, that's in the Bible? What is that about? This is how far Israel has fallen from, from what they just had conquering the land. Right after they're rescued, every time we hear, and the people of Israel did what was Evil in the sight of the Lord. Down they go again. You're not supposed to read the book of of Judges and find heroes of the faith. We don't go to the book of Judges and say, see right here, they did it so we can too. (laughs) No, the whole point is that they did it all wrong and God was merciful to not destroy them like Canaanites. They intermarried with foreign women. They were drunkards. Men were afraid to lead. So the women had to step up and lead the battles. They distrusted the clear commands of God. They prostituted themselves. They worshiped idols. And as cool as Samson sounds, he's the worst of them all. Zero regard for God's holiness, touching dead carcasses, marrying foreign women, adultery. He is no hero, but God was merciful. He promised Israel was going to be a great nation and a Redeemer would come from them. So with incredible patience, He brought them back again and again and again. And then we're given a little bit of hope. That refrain of sin about everyone doing what was evil in God's eyes turns just a little bit. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So we're reminded, what, what's the problem here is that there's nothing unifying them in, in holiness. They need an authority over them who can draw them together again in God's holiness. Just as in the book of Joshua, when they went around Jericho, they were unified carrying the throne of God. But they had forgotten about Him. And this is how the book ends. There's no one on the throne in Israel. There's nothing unifying them in God's holiness, but the story leads us to long for a righteous king who will arrive and rescue them from their defeat and their idolatry. The book of Judges is telling us a series of hero stories to let us know that none of our earthly heroes can lead us to true lasting peace. It portrays the sad reality of a people who define good and evil, right and wrong in their own eyes without something unifying them in God's holiness. It shows how all of us, without eyes on God, fall into these dichotomies, placing one another on either side, which lead to destruction. We're supposed to read this book and say, I'm like the Canaanites. I'm like Israel. I deserve to be conquered by His righteous judgment. Because we fight the wrong battles. We argue about lesser things. We take our eyes off His call to be unified in covenant loyalty. But if you let the story, if you see yourself, your own corruption in the story, your own tendency to divide with others on the world's terms then the story will make you hunger for this righteous King to unify us in victory. The throne was empty in Israel during the period of the judges and looking around us today, I don't see how anyone can claim that anyone's on the throne in America. Our land today is just like that of the judges. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Compromise everywhere, idol worship, sexual deviancy is celebrated, child sacrifice in abortion, calling all, on all kinds of godless heroes to come and rescue us. In these days, there is no king in America. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And we're spiraling out of control where every day seems to end with another story of senseless tragedy. We need a king who will lead us on a new conquest. And Jesus is that king in whom we will find victory. But this conquest is going to look a lot different. Most of us don't have swords. so, And we're not called to lift them anyway but they argue the the conquest will still be executed with the same patterns and with equal intensity. Joshua is now hinting at this con- coming conquest even in his own name. The name Joshua in Hebrew is Yehoshua and when you translate it into Greek it sounds like Jesus and when we translate that into English the same name is Jesus. Jesus and Joshua have the same name, meaning Yahweh is salvation. Joshua couldn't provide them lasting salvation, but His namesake would. Jesus is the true conqueror. He's the righteous King who will unify His people and purify not just the promised land, but the whole earth will be cleansed. And He does it not by drawing a sword, but by giving His life. The Holy King, the only one who had the right to walk around freely in the promised land, let the corruption conquer Him on the cross. He took the punishment for every unholy rebel who turns and runs back to Him. And He rose from the dead to begin a brand new nation to lead them to a new promised land. All who follow Him are guaranteed to enter that land by His victory simply by lifting Him high shouting His victory unified with His people and letting Him win the battle. This world is God's battlefield. And in Christ, we are called to the conquest. And in the same way, we are only going to win being unified in God's holiness. We find victory unified in King Jesus. We always have such a temptation to, to jump into the world's battles and tell them the right way. And then we only end up turning against one another. But we must remember the pattern of victory. Find victory unified in King Jesus. This is the lesson that last year should call every Christian to learn. On one hand... We don't give in to all of the world's demands and definitions of what's good and right, but we also can't fight against them with the weapons of the world. This is what Peter wanted to get the church, the early church to understand in 1 Peter chapter 1. See if I can turn there quickly. James, 1 Peter, there he is. Chapter 1 verse 13, he says, prepare your minds for action. In Greek it means, Gird up your loins. He's saying, put on your battle armor. It's time to fight. And then in the next chapter, chapter 2, he says to them, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. This is stirring up imagery from Joshua. Can you imagine these first Christians, Jewish Christians hearing this? They're going, I know this story. It's time for us to go to war. But don't be confused. The battle is not won with flesh and blood. Peter had to learn this the hard way. He was so eager always to jump out in front of Jesus and say, I got your back. He pulled his sword out one time and tried to cut a guy's head off. And he's a really bad aim, so he just got his ear. Peter had to learn the hard way. That is not how we fight in Christ. So in chapter 2 of his letter again, He says this extraordinary thing. Submit to the government. What? That's not what I was expecting. He's not saying don't fight. We need to fight. But he's also not saying do whatever they say as though they have a clear understanding of what righteousness looks like. He's simply calling us, telling us, don't engage in a bloody revolution. That's not how we're fighting anymore. That's not how this conquest will be won. We will find victory staying unified in King Jesus. The church needs to reject the battle lines drawn by the world. The call to submit to government isn't a mandate to accept their definitions and just step in line with their commands. It's a reminder that our conquest is not by the sword. We're to live at peace with our neighbors as best we can. Work for their good. Be a blessing to your neighbors as much as is possible. Work your way in and out of the battlefield. Sometimes on this side of the line and sometimes on this side of the line. I've had to do that both times in one day on occasion. You want to be careful not to join either side. Letting the world think that you're Your hope is just being on their side of either of some worldly battle. We must remain unified as a church, gathering together, lifting high the name of Jesus, proclaim his victory and his authority over all authorities. This is how we find victory in our personal battles with sin, all those temptations and victory in the conflicts of our society. The church must unify exalting Christ together. No matter what side of some worldly argument you fall on, our singular goal in this life must be banding together in our weakness, in our humility, lifting high Jesus on His throne, closing our mouths and letting Him win the battle. Shouting His victory alone. Weak after week, after week, after week, until the walls come tumbling down. Brothers and sisters, don't believe the world's dichotomies. Jesus is the only hero. He defines what's right and what's wrong. He gives us the battle plan for victory. Gather to exalt Christ is the only answer to all of our conflicts in dividing over anything else will guarantee defeat. I know it sounds rather silly. You're saying that we're going to solve all of our society's problems by just gathering and worshiping Jesus? I just ask you a similar question. You're saying you're going to knock down a fortified city and destroy the whole thing just by walking around it? It's not my plan. It's God's plan. This battle plan will make many of us uncomfortable. Because it doesn't seem safe or it doesn't seem wise. It's going to make us feel uncomfortable and that's good and right because we still have sin to be conquered in our hearts. We still have doubt and fear remaining to be cast out. Every one of us put hopes in the wrong heroes to rescue us. Feeling some level of discomfort with the church is good because it means Jesus is being lifted high and He's conquering and confronting your definitions of what is good and bad, right and wrong, safe and unsafe. But we stick together, pressing on together, trusting He will execute His plan. We push together through the discomfort because of the love and the joy that's promised and experienced. Am I right? Over the last year, we've experienced some wonderful moments of joy when we remain unified in Christ, we can be certain God's victory will be soon. It might not unfold in the way we expect, but you can be certain the walls will come tumbling down when we unify in the holiness of our King Jesus. Let's pray. God, this, these battles are so difficult. We can look at Joshua and the Israelites and the book of Judges and say, how foolish were they? But God, we are so easily tempted to fall into the same traps, believe the same lies, get distracted by the same shiny loot, the spoils of this world, to draw battle lines and place, turn against one another. God, Give us this moment to repent of our pride, of our willingness, eagerness to see our brothers and sisters as our enemies and help us seek unity together again in the goodness and mercy and the righteousness of our King Jesus. God, may we worship Him, lift Him high and see these men and women, boys and girls in this room, find victory over sin and temptation and walk in righteousness by Your side for the glory of our King Jesus. Amen.